0: They, the Israelites, made curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains were the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. They joined five of the curtains into one set and the other six into another set then they made 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. They made 50 bronze clasps to cast, uh, to fasten the tent together as a unit. Then they made for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. Did you get all of that? Enough detail for the ACD amongst us. This is representative of the material covered in chapters 35 to 40, detail after minute, dare I say it, sleep-inducing detail describing how the Israelites are to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place where the Lord is going to live among his people. And I'm going to suggest that aside from trivia fanatics, possibly interior designers, maybe architects, aside from then for the rest of us, it's hard to connect with a passage like this, I think. We feel swamped by the detail and if we're honest, the relevance is possibly lost on us and it's just easier to turn the page and start the next book. However, I think we might agree, at least broadly, this is important because it's God's Word, but I think we can also agree that passages like this are unlikely to feature as memory verses anytime soon, and that's partly why in the original preaching program, I was going to finish our Exodus, uh, our Exodus series last week. Um, if you were with us at 10 o'clock last week, you would have heard these brilliant words, the revelation of God's glory. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It doesn't get any better than that. And after such a high point, I figured no one would miss these last few chapters, besides which Christmas is upon us. It's Advent season, so something Christmassy this week would have made sense. How wrong I was on so many levels. How wrong I was. Skipping these final chapters would have been the dumbest thing and I would have ripped you off. Because here, very possibly, while it's true that my sermon may put you to sleep, far from being dispensable, what we've got here in chapters 35 to 40 is the very goal of the Exodus. We risk missing the point if we don't cover this material. And yes, it's true, we love to remember the drama of the plagues, the tension of the Red Sea, the significance of the Passover. We might even remember the, well, the disaster really of the golden calf. But if that's all you remember, well, then I've failed you because for all their importance, these individual Exodus events are pointing to something bigger. If you think of the miracles of Jesus, they are not an end in themselves, they point to something and likewise here, each episode is directing us, our attention, one after the other these episodes towards the ultimate goal of the Exodus. If you want one summary verse for our series, I think chapter 19 verse 4 is probably the pick. What's the Exodus about? Can you believe it? We started this series way back in August. What's been the point of this extended tour through this part of the Old Testament, chapter 19? You yourselves, Israel, have seen what I did, what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings. Here it is. Here's the goal of the Exodus and brought you to myself. There's the goal of the Exodus. Despite every obstacle, despite every opponent, Not even Israel's worst efforts can derail the Lord's purposes here. God is determined to live among his people and he's determined to bring them safely home. Now, before we get to the specifics of our passage tonight, I want to say a couple of things by way of practical consideration. Firstly, to the weighed-down believer. Those people who consider themselves never good enough and possibly those with heavy hearts who think, How am I going to get through tomorrow? These chapters provide a wellspring of reassurance. The Lord of the Exodus travels with you, ever willing to bear your burdens, and one who'll never despise you in your weakness. The Lord of the Exodus travels with you. But on the other hand, for the self assured believer, the believer who seems to have an answer for everything, who's never really been broken, not in any real kind of genuine sense, and who gives you the impression that, well, you know what, the Lord is just so pleased to have you on his team. The Lord of the Exodus travels with you too, by grace, as a sheer act of mercy, generously bearing with the character weaknesses you either cannot see or will not admit. Either way, weighed down, or self-assured to the praise of his name, the Lord is determined to live among his people. And so I hope today that we leave with a renewed sense of wonder and thanksgiving that the Lord would choose to live among us. God with us. Could there be a more timely message in the season of Advent? Imagine if I'd left these chapters out. What a fool. So with that long introduction, I've got three points for you today. Setting the vision, what is the vision of of the Exodus? Building the vision, what's it going to look like? And then fulfilling the vision. What is the Exodus pointing to? Let's begin, chapter 35. Turn with me. What's God's vision for the Israelites? Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and he said to them, these are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. As chapter 35 begins, it's almost as if the golden calf disaster hasn't happened. More accurately, because of his abounding love to a sinful, undeserving people, God will not allow evil to overcome his good purposes, which of course is a wonderful reassurance, isn't it? To those of us with a tender conscience, the super abundance of God's love more than overcomes the wickedness of our rebellion. But even so, the question still remains, why does this section begin with a replay of the Sabbath command? It seems a bit random, but that's because we might not have appreciated the story arc of the Exodus, which itself foreshadows the story arc of the Bible itself, by which I mean God is determined to rescue for himself a people who will share his eternal Sabbath rest. That's what the Exodus is about. And specifically here in context, by beginning this section with a call to Sabbath rest, we've got a clear distinction between life under Pharaoh and life under the Lord. There was no rest for the people of God in Egypt. Day after day, back-breaking, ruthless slave labour building the empire of a tyrant who treated God's people as little more than disposable animals. But now, chapter 35, having rescued his people, God takes up residence among them. And instead of building Pharaoh's empire, they have the privilege of building the Lord's house, a symbol of a new future where the life-affirming rhythms of God's good created order have been restored. God's people enjoying Sabbath rest in the presence of their Saviour God, being forced to stop Being forced to observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Did you notice that? It's a little phrase, but important. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. The Israelites have not been released from Egypt in their slavery, only to become slaves again to self-indulgence. Watching the Israelites here being forced to stop, we are challenged to remember there's more to life than our obsessive desire for worldly gain. So we have the vision of the Exodus. For their own good and for God's glory, before any building work begins, you'll notice God's people are told to stop. They are commanded to rest. God's people enjoying Sabbath rest in the presence of their Saviour God. Here is the vision of the Exodus. But there is building work to be done. We've heard that read already. Now, look, I'm aware there are some very handy people in the room here tonight, people that can seemingly do anything with their hands. I'm not one of them. I feel like a hero if I can successfully build IKEA furniture. That's just me. But there must have been some very talented people amongst the Israelites, men and women. And they're about to embark on a very highly detailed, intricate building project. And while we can get lost in the detail, the critical point, It's there in verse 5, which I think sets the tone for all that comes after. Let's take a run up from verse 4. What's it going to take to build the vision of the Exodus? Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering. Now, just as a reminder, this is the same Israelite community, only, what is it, three chapters ago, utterly disgraced themselves. And the Lord is still speaking with them. That's patience, isn't it? Now, for our purposes, we could go into the detail about the Ark of the Covenant. We could talk about the lampstand. We could go into the detail of the altar and much more. I want to zoom in simply on two phrases, the first of which, verse 5, from what you have If you've ever been tempted to think that God expects the impossible of you, let this sink in from what you have. Let's compare the pair. Pharaoh demanded the impossible. He demanded the Israelites make bricks, but took from them the resources they needed, yet never changed the quota. He demanded the impossible. By contrast, the Lord says, from what you have. Now we should remember the Israelites left Egypt with enormous quantities of gold and other precious materials. After the plagues, the, the Egyptians literally paid the Israelites to get out. And so by asking from what you have, Moses knows the Israelites have been blessed with huge wealth, as of we, by the way. My point is, when it comes to building the Lord's tabernacle, his house, his tent, the Israelites have the capacity. They have the resources. That's not their issue. The question is, do they have the heart for it? And So by asking from what you have, Moses is making the point, isn't he? You've got plenty, but are you with me on this? From what you have... Take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering. From what you have, everyone who is willing. Look, I wonder what holidays were like for you as a kid. I used to go on driving holidays with my parents, and they used to stop the car every so often for some compulsory fun. And you had to get out, and you had to go and look at some random lookout, which was meant to be interesting. This is one of those moments when we need to stop the car and admire the scenery. Sinful though they are. And they are. God wants to live among his people. Unbelievable. And God's people want to make this happen. Unbelievable. Which means, and this doesn't happen often, and this is why we've got to stop the car and get out and take a look, God's heart and the heart of his people are united. To the point where the people commit willingly to doing whatever is necessary for the Lord to be rightly honoured. Look at verse 20. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. No doubt those who were willing, those who came forward, realised Everything they have, everything has been provided by the Lord. Their very lives have been spared by the Lord. Everything they have is a gift. Strange then how we so easily congratulate ourselves, taking pride in our own strength, our good decisions, Our ingenuity, our capacity for hard work, forgetting that everything we have is a gift from our generous Father. Worth noting then how, when given the opportunity, with appropriate direction, The super abundance of God's generosity is reflected in his people as their fists open and they give and give and give. So much so in chapter 36, Moses says, stop, enough. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Imagine living in a community where people's generosity is told to stop. Enough. I've witnessed this kind of generosity from people in our church, do you know? And it is magnificent. Super abundance of God's generosity reflected in his people. This is what happens when instinctively stingy human hearts are overcome by God's loving kindness. Where the question shifts from how much do I need to give So how could I possibly hold anything back? And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Unbelievable. Not only so, when Moses inspects their building work, remember, these are the people who are the golden calf who as if in an instant deserted the Lord, forgot every command. When Moses inspects the building work, look what happens. This is chapter 39 now. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they'd done it just as the Lord had commanded. I don't know what these people have done with the Israelites, but these people are doing exactly as they've been commanded. Super abundant, willing generosity has combined with joyful obedience. You wouldn't have picked that a few chapters ago, would you? God's people enjoying God's presence, living joyfully under God's loving rule. And so as the book of Exodus draws to a close, these grumbling, stiff-necked Israelites are giving us a precious moment to savour. It won't last But don't get in the car and drive off just yet. Enjoy this moment. Savour it. God's people enjoying God's presence, living joyfully under his loving rule. It's a glimpse of what's to come in the new creation. But you know as well as me, as good as this scenario was, it was only temporary and it was, at best, at least anyway, only ever a preview If you were with us last week for our carol service, we sang together once in Royal David City. I wonder if you remember how the uh, second verse begins. He came down to earth from heaven. And that alerts us to the fulfilment of the exodus. The Lord who squeezed his glory, if such a thing is possible, into that tiny tent became even smaller again. And to what end? Why did he do it? Maybe you remember this verse from John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's the goal of the Exodus. The same Lord who humbled himself in a tent among the Israelites now humbles himself still further that he might dwell among those who'd call on his name, the one who before whom every knee will bow, he came down. Leaving the glory of his father's side, he came down. Leaving the riches of heaven, he came down to give his life as a ransom for many, he came down. And I want us to realise it was a really, really long way. because the Lord remains determined to live with his people. And to make this possible, he holds nothing back, not sparing even his own son, that those who would believe might become the children of God. And so as recipients of this loving kindness, undeserving though we are, it would be strange, don't you think, for us to withhold something from our Saviour. And so as our series from the book of Exodus draws to a close, I think it's right that we let Exodus speak for itself in what would later be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, by whose power we are created and by whose love we are redeemed. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I'm going to pray. Why don't you join me? Father, we do thank you for your patient love towards us, and we do praise you for your kindness in sending the Lord Jesus, that he would become one of us, that we might become your children. And so, Father, we pray this week, would you say work in our hearts, that you'd produce in us that willing, joyful obedience, that we might serve you rightly as your people, as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Father, hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.